Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 7. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Hearman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travishearman.com slash rogues. Chapter 8 Javin Wollstone rode through the streets of Norgard, clutching the reins so tightly his fingers hurt. His mount, a steel-gray buck collard named Saltstone, loped through the narrow streets with its long, leaping stride, oblivious to the turmoil within Javin's belly. Its nails clicked rhythmically against the cobblestones, warning people that a rider was approaching. Riding usually served to lighten Javin's mood, but not today. His shoulder pained him. Bella's fate worried him, and his father had angered him, and not just angered him, hurt him. Was his cowardice so shameful that his father was sending him off to die with a bloodthirsty band of mercenaries, practically outlaws themselves? How did his father know that his courage had been shattered? Was that why he had been finally stripped of command? He now had nothing, only his rank and his family name. What a pathetic, useless soldier he had become in only a few short hours. The Black Furies were little more than rabble. They would flee like whipped jackals in the face of a cavalry charge. At least Javin's company had withstood a farthy cavalry charge. They had not survived it in the end, but they had not broken. The ride through the city, even on such a swift mount, took time, and Javin stewed in his own sour juice. Soldiers from every great house clogged the streets. The great houses were going to war. Regiments of infantry were mustering, preparing to march, probably to Tarn's Rift and Ramon Pass, the two principal through-points into Cusca. Tarnak Castle lay at the center of the city, and he passed through the successive districts belonging to the various great houses, and some few minor houses as well, before he finally reached the northern gates. The gates were supposed to be closed to all traffic, but no one would refuse a direct order from Javin Wollstone. By mid-afternoon, he was riding across the countryside toward a remote estate, some twelve leagues from Norgard, near the town of Norvan, an ancient sister city to Norgard that had long ago succumbed to Norgard's growth and prestige. These days, Norvan was just a quaint provincial town of tradesmen and farmers, held by House Fargold. The black-and-gold Fargold banner hung prominently at the gates of town, and the guard's surcoats bore the crossed axe's crest. He reined up near the inn, the black kettle, and tied his collade to the hitching post. It grunted and tossed its head, stretching its powerful rear legs, raising its sensitive nose to inhale the host of unfamiliar scents. Its long ears perked and twisted as it voiced another series of unhappy grunts. 
Javin rubbed the soft gray fur on its neck, then grabbed its chin spike and gave it a strong, playful shake. The beast relaxed, settling down onto its forepaws. Beside the inn was a gunsmith's shop, and resting in front was a wagon half-filled with supplies. Two box waited in draft at the front of the wagon. The sign above the door looked new, and Javin was surprised to see a weapon right in a town such as this. He rested his hand on the butt of his pistol and approached the shop. A tall man with neatly clipped blonde hair emerged from the doorway. He placed a wooden crate in the wagon with other things. Gunpowder, ammunition, a cask of wine, a barrel of ale, a barrel of salted bok meat, a barrel of dried apples, flour. The man challenged him with a firm gaze. You've a bit of a long nose, boy. Javin stiffened. I beg your pardon? Perhaps you should load the wagon. There's plenty more. Javin's eyes narrowed, and he was already in a surly mood as he sized up the man. He was half a hand taller than Javin, several years older, but lean and hard, with a strong chiseled face and flinty gray eyes. A pale blonde goatee jutted from his chin. He wore simple, close-fitting clothes of gray and black, and a long dirk in his belt. "'I have just arrived, sir,' Javin said. "'Your rudeness offends me. Do you know who I am?' "'Does it matter who you are? You look like a soldier. Soldiers should be strong enough to load a wagon. Now get to it. I'm going to have a pint of beer while you work.' Javin stood aghast as the man shouldered him aside. He reached out to grasp the man's shoulder, but as he did, the man spun, his hand flashing out. All Javin remembered afterward was a wrenching pain in his wrist, an arm driving him to his knees, a boot in his chest that sent him skidding backwards in the dirt. He had not even seen what happened. He scrambled to his feet, his face hot, the wound in his shoulder sizzling. In the center of his chest was a pale, dusty boot print. He lunged at the man, plowing into his waist and driving him back against the hitching post. Saltstone jumped aside, grunting and baring his fangs. They tumbled together over the hitching post, and Javin landed on top of the man. He drew back a fist, but before he could land a blow, the heel of the man's hand smashed up into his chin, driving him up, and another fist followed an instant later, pummeling straight into his chest, driving the wind out of him. Javin fell back onto his side, gasping for breath but he lashed out with a boot at the side of the man's head. The man dodged just enough to turn a solid blow into a glancing one. They rolled away from each other onto their feet, and Javin assumed a defensive stance, gasping for breath. The man stood tall and at ease, looking Javin up and down. Is that all you got, boy? Is that the best house Wollstone has to offer? Show some pride! The words burned in Javin's ears, and he stepped in. The man slid to the side into Javin's wounded shoulder, but maintaining the distance, they danced around each other, fainting and shuffling. The man said, Caught your breath yet? Perhaps you'd like me to offer you a free blow? Perhaps you'd like me to give you one? Ha! The man lunged forward, fainted left. Javin moved to block the feint, but realized his mistake too late. The man's elbow smashed into his nose. The pain all but blinded him and the sick dread in his guts told him that another blow was coming. The next was an iron-hard knee to his belly, with one final blow to the top of the head that drove him to his knees. The man stood over him. You're going to have to do a lot better than that. Javin tasted salty blood on his lips, dabbed at it with the back of his hand, then with a sudden lunge drove his fist squarely into the man's groin. The man groaned and staggered. 
Javin stood up and spat blood. Perhaps you should be sure where your enemy is down before you gloat. Wetness spread across his back, and the torn stitches burned. The man's face was red, and veins popped out on the sides of his neck as he straightened up, took a deep breath, and seemed to absorb the pain like a sponge until it was gone. I'm Carl, but you can call me Sir. Now, help me finish loading the wagon. The boss is waiting. Carl treaded stiffly back to the wagon. Something in the way the man moved, the cut of his hair, the trim of his beard, the sharp precision of his words. Are you... are you a nobleman? House Macklin, perhaps? Carl turned on Javin, and his voice was cold. I once upon a time. What, why does it matter? It's just that... I, I thought you were a commoner. Had I known you were of noble birth... So when I was a commoner, you felt slighted, eh? But now, what's the difference? I should have been more respectful, as one gentleman to another. Carl burst into a laugh. Ah, you are indeed a fool. Do not mock me. First rule among the Black Furies, boy. There are no gentlemen, nobles, or commoners. We fight and bleed together. Blood is blood, no matter how high-born your mother. Carl turned away, then turned back to add, And here's the second rule. Never hesitate, or you will die, or cause the deaths of your brothers. You know how to follow orders, yes? Javin stood up straight. Of course, sir. Get your arse over here, and don't make me tell you again. I won't be so kind next time. You knew who I was? You think I'm daft? Besides, the fight was inevitable. You're tough, I'll give you that, and it will go well in your report. This was your first test. There will be others. And the next rule. You don't have to like it. You just have to do it. Among the Black Furies, everybody fights together. Everybody trains together. And everybody works together. We're readying for a mission now. We don't have servants or stewards or low-rank lackeys. As long as you're with us, you're nothing but a low-birth, pigeon-livered, pus-face, milk-breath, fish-limp, mewling codsucker whose mother shat you out on a slime-covered rock. Until you prove yourself otherwise. Until you've earned it. Now, step up and hoist a crate, little codsucker, or prepare yourself to eat more dirt. Javin stood tall and smoothed his uniform. A crack like thunder rumbled down from the distant mountainside above, echoing over the valley, shooting a chill down his spine. He surveyed the sky. The storm rolling in from the northwest had not yet obscured the blue sky. He spotted the column of black smoke rising from the forested mountainside in the distance. He glanced at Carl, who stood looking up at the smoke with a smirk on his lips. Training, Carl said as he walked into the gunsmith shop and began hauling crates. Chapter 9 As Helion's blood-red face slid into the sea, bathing Norgard in its sullen crimson glow, Janus rode through the gate of the walled compound surrounding the infamous blood tower, across the hard stone courtyard and reined up beside the tower itself. To the north, towering over the sun's dying rays, a mass of dark purple clouds roiled high against the sky, and the tower's surface looked drenched in blood. At the top of the tower, the war bell bonged, 
striking the hour seven times with mechanical precision. The war bell was an ingenious construction that used water and sand to keep the time. The somber chimes rang out over the city as they had every day for more than a hundred years. Animals notoriously shunned the blood tower, and Janus's mount proved no exception. His kala jumped and snorted as if could sense the blood and death clung like a thick miasma to this place. Even the sea breeze here smelled sour and rotten. The blood tower stood upon a singular stone promontory overlooking the harbor, not far from Tarnak Castle. One of the three streets leading to the castle passed by the blood tower. The blood tower, it was said to have been built originally of pure white stone, but had been stained by the oceans of blood spilled within its cold walls. Of course such talk was nonsense, yet it was a fearful place, a place of punishment, a place of vengeance, a symbol of power and authority. Even more frightening than the lofty cells and torture chambers was the mouth of what burrowed beneath, the underground, the dark, dank labyrinth of retribution and captivity, a place where countless prisoners from time immemorial had disappeared forever from the eyes of men. Long, winding innards of natural stone hollowed out into cells and holding blocks. Some said the tunnels of the underground were more extensive than the city of Norgard itself. Only goddess of the underworld knew the full extent of the pitch-black passages. The sun and moon did not. The passages closest to the blood tower had been hollowed out into a formidable dungeon, bricked up and sealed off from the untouched natural caverns, but the rest... Had the kidnappers used the underground to spirit Bella out of the city? Janice's collard snorted and honked, tossing its head and threatening to throw him onto the hard paving stones. He slid off and clutched the reins, pulling its head down into a submissive posture. The gesture calmed the beast and he threw the reins around the hitching post before it changed its mood again. The single iron door entrance was just large enough for one man. Tethered near the door were two collards and a bock-drawn wagon holding an iron cage. The cage stood empty, and the box shuffled restlessly. One collard wore a fine gilded saddle, emblazoned in gold with the crest of House Harstorm. In the center of the iron door, just below a closed viewing slit, was an oft-beaten iron disc and a sledgehammer hanging by a worn leather thong from a hook below the disc. An ancient bronze plaque fastened above the door read, Our souls exult, another to seek Helian's justice. Up close, the pink and scarlet swirls in the marble were obscured by dark gray streaks that ran down the sides of the tower like runnels of liquid soot, the stain of the ages, the stain of death. Janus took up the hammer and struck thrice against the iron disc. The clangs echoed within, and he waited. Strange that there were no guards to be seen on the walls, at the gate. He waited. He was the Grand General. Wasting his time was not wise. When he had received word that Lord Harstorm's four farthy slave women were in the custody of the Punisher's Guild and on their way to the Blood Tower, he had steeled himself for what had to be done. He had come immediately, and now it seemed there was no one at home. Still, he waited. This door, the only entrance, could be opened only from the inside. Open up, damn you! His teeth clenched and his arms tensed. Still, no one came. 
he grasped the hammer again, this time in both hands. If no one came at this summons, he would have Rivas expelled from the Punisher's Guild and subjected to his own devices. He struck three blows upon the disc, so powerful that he gashed three deep scars into the middle. The door shuddered under the impact of the hammer blows, and he glimpsed movement at the door's edge, as if the force had bounced it open a hair's breadth. He grabbed the handle and pulled. With a heavy creak, the thick door answered his tug and swung outward. In the failing light of sunset, the interior was a narrow black tunnel. A single feeble lamp burned at the end of the passage. Such carelessness! Someone would pay dearly for this. The blood tower was to be closed, locked and guarded at all times. This was a prison, not a pie shop, to be waltzed into at a whim. He stalked inside and down the narrow, low-ceilinged hallway to the thick gate of iron bars at the far end. This passageway was a killing tunnel, fraught on all sides with murder holes, with an impenetrable iron portcullis at each end. Just like the front door, the inner door lay ajar. Something was wrong. He pulled his ivory-handled pistols, checked the primer loads, and cocked the hammers. His belly grew taut, as it always did before battle. He eased open the inner door and slid into the passageway. The air stank of smoke and of cold, musty stone, and the, and the scuffle of his feet sounded like an avalanche in the dead silence. The passageway beyond the killing tunnel went two directions. One way curved around and led toward the stairs toward the upper floors. The other led through the offices and storage rooms to the underground. Past empty offices and dark storerooms, empty holding cells and locked armories, he wound through the maze, down a flight of narrow steps into a wide narrow passage in the rock, to face a glowing mouth twenty feet across and blocked by thick iron bars like the teeth of a whale. The glow came from within the lamplit passageway beyond the bars, the entrance to the underground. The only sound was the dripping of water in the cavernous passageways. Beyond the bars, the jailer's table stood with a stack of papers, a quill and ink, a dim lamp, and a shiny green apple. The broad passageway snaked down and away, with entrances to small cells pocking the raw stone walls on each side. Amorphous shadows writhed among the stalactites above, in the cell doorways, amidst pools of yellow-orange lamplight. Janice paused in the shadows outside the iron bars, studying the area for any little details, anything that would explain the feeling of dread building within him. There, behind the jailer's table, was that a dark, wet smear across the floor? He found the heavy iron door into the underground unlocked at his push. It swung inward with a dry, rusty squawk that echoed into the depths like a scream of warning. He cursed under his breath and slid past. The dark smear on the floor was blood, still moist. The smear led toward a nearby cell. Janice stalked toward the cell. The beat of his heart picked up speed like a boulder rolling downhill. With a push of his pistol barrel, the cell door swung inward. Janice thrust one pistol back into its holster and brought a lamp to drive back the darkness. In the spreading pool of lamplight lay a man's body on its back. The front of his black Punisher's Guild jacket was soaked with dark wetness, and a deep scarlet smile stretched across his throat. He set aside the lamp, pulled his pistol again, and set off down the brightly lit passageway. He knew the way to the torture chambers. 
Deeper into the passageways, a long, broad corridor smelled of moldy straw, burning coals, and the coppery scent of hot metal. The air was warm and thick, but he was already sweating. A warm trickle slid down his cheek, into his beard, another down his nose. Damn, but his body betrayed him. He had been too long away from the snarl and rush of combat. The torture chamber was this level's biggest, most often used chamber. Orange glowing braziers supported columns of hot, rippling air. The implements of torture and punishment hung from racks and hooks, gleaming dully, sharp, blunt, vicious, precise. The room reeked of fresh-billed gore. He peered through the open door, scanning the shadows, pistols leveled. Blood spilled across the floor, filling the cracks, pooling in the depressions. He moved around the racks of implements, past the wheel, past the rack, to the back wall where the four farthy women hung, manacled to the stone. They wore the simple sand-colored robes of farthy peasant women. Steel manacles around their upper arms held their slack bodies against the wall, but their heads were gone, and their arms ended in bloody stumps. Janus stepped near to examine them and clenched his teeth. The jagged edges of the flesh said that each decapitation had required sawing, like butchering a bock. These killings had been neither quick nor painless. He imagined the helpless, terrified women watching as the murderer sawed off the heads of their sisters. Their hands had been severed at the wrist, much more neatly than the heads. He looked around the chamber but saw no heads or hands. The women had not been the first to die. Four men lay dead on the floor. Their slashed throats and staring eyes bespoke fear and a lightning-swift attack. One of them was Rivas. The hulking, distasteful brute had been a legendary master torturer, but he was hardly a man Janus would miss. Likewise, the vile-looking Punisher apprentice, whom Rivas must have brought with him, now also lying dead in a lake of gore. Two more men, these in House Harstorm's maroon uniforms, one of them, Lord Challen Harstorm himself, lay sprawled in death. Lord Harstorm must have accompanied his slaves so he could watch while they were put to the question. The other Harstorm man was a young junior officer, and Janus thought he recognized him as one of Lord Challen's sons. But the young man's face had been cleft open by the slash of a heavy blade. His nose was all but gone, and his right eye dangled from its socket. The young man's dead hand clutched a pistol. Janus pried the young man's fingers off the grip, picked up the pistol, and sniffed the barrel. It had been discharged, and the corpse was still warm. He set the pistol back down near the young man's dead hand. The attack had been so swift it allowed time for only a single shot. None of the others had drawn their weapons. The attackers might have escaped, but this brave lad might have wounded one of them. A wounded man would leave a blood trail. He took a moment to consider the fact that House Harstorm would now descend into chaos as Lord Challen's other two sons and his three brothers vied for control. Lord Challen was not a friend of Janice Wollstone, but he was a political ally against House Macklin, and now one of Janice's allies was gone. Janice searched the hallway for a blood trail and spotted telltale scarlet droplets a few paces away from the chamber, leading back toward the first cell block. He stole down the passageways deeper into the underground. Deeper. Long minutes of quickening breath and thundering heart. 
down through winding channels where the air grew moist and the cell doors looked so rotten they probably had not been used since before his great-grandfather's time. Strange, then, that the lamps were lit deeper into the earth. He thought he had descended so far into the earth that he must be nearing the level of the sea, and that was when he'd reached the end of the light. The blood trail led him faithfully, then stopped at a fork in the cavern, beside the last burning lamp. Beyond this feeble circle of light was nothing but pure cave blackness in the cold, dark bowels of the earth. He holstered one pistol and took the lamp out of its sconce. The dust-caked lamp resisted removal with a metallic squeak. A gout of trepidation surged through his blood. Could he remember the path back to the surface? How dreadfully easy to become lost in the endless labyrinthine blackness. How easy to wander helpless in the abyss until madness or thirst claimed his life. He shook away the dread, gripped his weapons, the thunder and the flame, and sought the blood trail. Careful to note his path as the caverns became rougher and wilder, he clung to his circle of light and followed the droplets to the end of the path. The passageway came to an abrupt end at a wall of bricks and mortar. Could the assassins have retraced their steps? Did they take another route? The flame flickered and danced in unseen air currents, and his gaze fell upon the oil flame with the dawn of realization. He set down the lamp and laid his hand against the bricks in the center of the wall. One of them shifted under his pressure. With two fingers he pushed on the brick and it gave way to fall into the empty black space behind the wall. He pushed another brick out of its place, then another. His gaze trained upon the wall. All the bricks in the center portion, just large enough for a man to crawl through, had been loosened from their mortar, removed, then carefully replaced. He shoved his shoulder against it, and it collapsed away from him into the vast unknown blackness beyond. Air rushed through the gap, driving the flame of his lamp into a sputtering frenzy. He breathed a sigh of gratitude for the glass hood that protected the flame. The ease with which the women, the punishers, and the harstorms had been dispatched, the fact that someone knew the women had something important to divulge, that someone had let the assassins inside... All of these smacked of a conspiracy far larger and more organized than he had imagined. There was no time to call for reinforcements. He shouldered his way through the hole into the darkness. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.